And Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you just for um, just the laughter in the room and the friendships that are old and some that are just forming, God. And, and it's all based on wanting to hear from you. So pray for your presence tangibly in the room, God, and that you would be very honored uh, with our hearts tonight. And pray that you would show us things that we've never seen before, Lord, that you said that um, it's your pleasure, Lord, to, to hide things. And our, it's our joy to seek them out. We pray tonight is a night of joy of seeking those things out, Lord, because we love searching for you and we love finding you. So uh, may this be a day of knowing you more and loving you more that helps us for the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we're journeying through John... We have their tremendous introduction of the Word made flesh dwelling amongst us. And we had the gathering of apostles. We saw Jesus at the end of John 1 was creating a new Bethel, a new house of God. Uh, he was seeming to imitate the story of Jacob and the uh, dream of the ladder, where Jacob fell asleep on a stone and he immediately grabs Peter and names him Stone. And then uh, he promises Nathaniel uh, a vision of heaven opening and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And we saw all the way in Revelation the fulfillment of that. And uh, then in chapter 2, we see Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And uh, we talked about uh, that as far as the accusation that uh, he didn't follow the wedding custom. And we saw in Revelation again that he did fulfill the wedding custom. And now we are going to see the first conversation with a Pharisee in John chapter 3. And this Pharisee's name is Nicodemus, and he's a part of the Sanhedrin, which means he's part of a select class of Pharisees that actually sits on the council with other Sadducees. And if these words sound unfamiliar, you're not sure what to picture when you hear Pharisee and Sadducee the way that I remember it is. The Pharisees are the very legalistic ones that teach you to follow the law to the very letter that when they tithe, Jesus said they would tithe their spices, they would give a tenth of even their spices to the Lord. And so they're very, very, very strict, um, very pharisaical. Um, and you can remember the Pharisees because they would have you follow the law in a way that wasn't very fair, you see. That's pity laughing. Uh, the Sadducees, the Sadducees, they actually weren't very religious. They they didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels, the angelic world, and all of that. And because they didn't believe in life after death, that made them very sad. You see, all right. That's how you can remember some of this stuff. All right. All right, so five minutes ago I said no more jokes, and I'm still rolling with them. Um, so uh, verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This is the same Nicodemus that will show up at Jesus' death and ask to care for the body of Jesus. So you can see this is a significant conversation here in John 3. This is a very significant conversation he's going to have with Jesus that allows him to show up at the end of Jesus' life and actually uh, play a positive role in that. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Now, how would he know that? Now, this is very significant. This will be the first point I want to make tonight. He says, we know 
that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we talked about signs last time. There are miracles that authenticate the messenger. He says nobody can do these miracles or these signs that you do unless God was with him. So today uh, at Calvary I was teaching uh, the reliability of the Bible. And the way that I started that lesson was by um, saying that when you look at world religions, one major, major factor that sets Christianity apart is the miracles. Now, the Old Testament has them through Moses and Elijah, the New Testament through Jesus and the apostles. The apostles were granted miracle working power as well. And, and that differentiates Christianity from all the other world religions, is the overwhelming presence of miracles, even attested to by the enemies of Christ. Even the Pharisees will acknowledge his supernatural power. And one of the great proofs you get in a court of law is what's called enemy attestation. Enemy attestation is when somebody who opposes you grants a point that you're making. They'll say, well, that's true. That I agree with about his case. Okay. Well, one of the things even the enemies of Christ agreed upon was that he was a miracle worker. That's pretty much settled. But of course, over the centuries, there have been people that have denied this uh, miracle working power of Christ. And I want to talk about two of them because they're two of the more famous names throughout history to oppose the possibility of miracles. And I want you to hear their arguments so you can see the shaky ground that opposition to the miracles are on. The first guy I want to talk about is Benedict Spinoza. Benedict Spinoza, in the 17th century, let's see if I can get this going. <coughs> oh, that whole turn it on thing. Yeah, okay. All right. There we go. All right, good. So Benedict Spinoza, in the 1670s, he put forth an argument to say that miracles are impossible. We should not acknowledge that miracles could or did ever happen. And his way of making his argument is put forth in a typical way of presenting arguments. He had two premises that he would propose. And if those two premises can be proven, then his conclusion that miracles are impossible would follow. So his first premise was that miracles are violations of natural law. Miracles are violations of natural law. Now, what's natural law? The laws of nature. Okay? So, right now, gravity is a law of nature. And... The fact that none of us are floating around is proving that none of us are violating that law, correct? And if any of us did start floating around, that would be a miracle, wouldn't it? Because we'd be violating a law of nature. So Benedict Spinoza's first premise was that miracles are violations of natural laws. His second premise is that natural laws are immutable. Natural laws are immutable, meaning unchangeable. So he said, so he would say, therefore, miracles are impossible. I'm getting worse at this as I write, aren't I? Miracles are impossible. 
Okay? So when you make an argument like this, the only way to prove your conclusion is if you can prove the two premises, the premises that you put forward. Well, I grant him, number one, I agree miracles are violations of natural law. So premise one is agreed upon. What about premise two, though? Natural laws are immutable or unchangeable. Is that true? Well, <clears throat> what I would propose is this. The beginning of the universe violates the second law of thermodynamics. The so second law of thermodynamics says all matter goes from a state of order to a state of chaos. This podium over the years will get more and more run down and less reliable. Your chairs that you're sitting on over the years will get less and less reliable. They'll go from states of order and they'll advance towards states of chaos. Your cars do it. Our bodies do it. Everything goes from order to chaos. But the universe, through the Big Bang, went from complete chaos to total order. It literally was an explosion that became so orderly that we can study it through physics, can't we? We can put mathematical equations to tell us about gravity, the speed of light, energy, math, all these things are completely orderly and predictable. People can tell you about 100 years from now when a comet will come by at just the right place and time for you to see it. And it'll be like a century away because it's so ordered that we can know these things. And that came from total chaos. That's a violation of natural law. The second law of thermodynamics would forbid that from happening, yet we know from Einstein and others that it did happen. So, therefore, it's a violation of natural law. Therefore, natural laws are not immutable. They have been violated before, and that is indeed a miracle. So, unless Spinoza can disprove the existence of the universe, uh, he cannot say that miracles are impossible. Now, that theory has fallen out of repute for good reason over the years. But in the mid-1800s, another guy you might be more familiar with, David Hume, he picked up the objection to miracles by saying this. I'm not going to write all this out because it's a little bit more. But David Hume, who said you must start all inquiries with doubt. He says you must begin all inquiries with doubt. So much so that he would say you have to doubt your own existence. Okay? You have to doubt your own existence, which led to, um, I'm on the name, very famous, uh, Rene Descartes. What did he do with that? He said, I'm starting with doubt, and I'm going to start with doubting my own existence. But because I'm doubting, which is a category of thought, I know that I'm thinking, and I think, therefore, I am. Okay, so I prove my own existence just by the fact that I doubt. Okay, and if I have to start with doubt, it proves my own existence. Can you imagine smart people actually have to come up with whether they exist or not before they move on? That's what they do. Okay, so David Hume. He, one of his famous quips was, all talk is meaningless. What's the problem with that assertion? He's using talk that he needs you to find meaningful so that you can understand that it's actually meaningless. Right? So he can't even state his point without violating his own point. Okay? It's like the uh, postmodern thought of uh, there's no such thing as absolute truth. That's a statement of absolute truth that you have to give to say that the thing doesn't exist. You have to give an absolute truth to say that it doesn't exist. So in other words, 
all these postmodern ideas violate themselves, they contradict themselves, they cancel themselves out right away. Now here's what David Hume did with miracles. He started his premises by saying, natural law, this is easy to follow, it's very obvious, because natural law is by definition a description of a regular occurrence. Right? You walk on the ground because gravity is a natural law, so you regularly walk on the ground. Natural laws are things that regularly occur. So premise one, I grant them. Premise two, I grant him. A miracle, by definition, is a rare occurrence. So he starts by saying, things that follow natural law are common occurrences. Miracles are rare occurrences, by definition. And then I'll say the evidence for the regular is always greater than the evidence for the rare. Of course, right? The evidence for the regular is always greater than the evidence for the rare. And this is where he falls apart. He'll say a wise man always bases his belief on the greater evidence. Is that true? He'll say, therefore, a wise man should never believe in miracles. So his argument goes like this. Um, natural law is a regular occurrence. Miracles are a rare occurrence. Evidence for regular occurrences is far greater than evidence for rare occurrences. Wise people form their beliefs on the greater evidence, which would be regular occurrences. Therefore, if you're wise, you cannot believe in miracles because they're rare. So what he does is, he defines miracles as rare events and then punishes them for being rare events. And how do we disprove this? Well, it's quite simple. I would say, David Hume, how many times have you been born? Once. That was a rare event. So according to your logic, you should not believe in your own birth. How many times was the universe created? Once. That's a rare event. Yet, you're in the universe. By your logic and your reasoning, not believe in the universe. So um, he would have to say, David Bean would have to say, that even an eyewitness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if he was in the tomb with Jesus for three days, looking at him, not breathing, no pulse, no anything, and then Jesus got up three days later, he would, David Bean would say, you have to disregard what you've seen because that was a rare event and there's little evidence for rare events. That's the failure of David Hume's argument. Where what we have, David Hume should like this, because he wants empirical evidence to believe. Well, he has the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1 saying this, that which was from the beginning, that brings your mind right to Genesis 1-1 creation, right? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, see the empirical evidence, We've heard, we've seen with our eyes that which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. We're eyewitnesses, we're ear witnesses, we're hand witnesses. He says, concerning the word of life, that life was manifested. We made available to our senses. That life out there was made available to our senses. And he says, and we have seen and we bear witness and we declare to you that eternal life, the very thing we want more than anything, He's saying we, we have empirical evidence of that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And that which we have seen and heard, we now declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. In other words, joy is at stake here, isn't it? Joy is at stake. Apostle John saying this, Everything your Supreme Court justice would want, 
to make a decision on does somebody go to jail for the rest of his life or not. He wants eyewitness testimony that's reliable, right? He's saying that's what we're giving you about the eternal life given to us by Jesus Christ. We're eyewitnesses. And you say, well, what's your credibility as an eyewitness? Well, how many eyewitnesses are willing to be imprisoned, beaten, and executed for their testimony? Very few. The ones that have deserve the highest level of credibility because they're willing to give all for their testimony. That's credible. That's what we have. All right. So, Hume, David Hume doesn't weigh the evidence for rare events. Rather, he gives the weight to the probability of regular events while discounting the countless testimony of rare events. How many of you have ever heard of somebody saying they got a hole in one? David Hume would say you got to disbelieve that. You got to disbelieve it. it's a rare event. You can't believe in those things, right? Okay? That would, a hole in one wouldn't count for him. All right, so miracles, I would say this. Because of history, because of the testimony of miracles, because of, of what people have written about miracles, they are far, far more likely to be true than not true. Simply following the weight of the evidence, it would take far greater faith to believe miracles never happen than it does to believe that they have. And what does the testimony of Nicodemus tell us? He says, I never met you, but here's what I know about you. You are from God. Because of all the miracles you've been doing. They're testifying to us about you. See how that works? Your miracles testify to who you are. All right, verse 3. Verse 3. Jesus came and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is one of those times that I love. We saw it in John 1 with Nathaniel. We see it here in John 3 with Nicodemus. We'll see it next week. John 4 with the Samaritan woman, that the very first statement Jesus makes towards somebody he just met is the exact thing they needed to hear for their life. He doesn't waste time. With the first sentence he says to you, he'll say to Nathaniel, you're a true Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. The very thing he was struggling over. He's now saying to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, somebody trained in following every detail in the law, thinking it makes him more righteous thinking I'm better with God than other people because I follow the law more strictly. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector that went in the temple to pray? And the Pharisee's literally giving thanks that I'm not like this tax collector, and he gives a laundry list of all the good stuff that he does. And he says he walked away unjustified in his prayer. But the tax collector says, I am a mess and I'm a sinner and I can't even lift my head up to you. I just beat my breast and I say, have mercy on me. Because that man walked away justified. So these Pharisees, these Pharisees, Nicodemus is one of them, yet he finds himself compelled to meet face to face with Jesus, and that's made all the difference in separating him from the other Pharisees. But what does Jesus say to a Pharisee in the very first statement? I tell you the truth, you must be born again, or you won't see the kingdom of God. Now that would have been jaw-dropping, shocking to a Pharisee. You're telling me that I'm not going to see the kingdom of God if I die tonight. If I just stay born the way that I was born and I'm not reborn in any way, I will not see the kingdom of God. With all the Saturday morning teachings I do in the synagogue, with all of the rule following that I do and I train others to do, you're saying I won't make it to heaven? And Jesus is telling them, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, 
here's where the claim of exclusivity hits Christianity sometimes. What do you mean there's one thing that has to be done, one way to do this thing? You have to be born again. You don't give, or you can do this, or you can do that, or you can follow this one, or you can follow that one. He says, no, here's the one thing. You must be born again. It's this claim of exclusivity of the way and the person through whom the way comes. The accusation is, why do you think you guys have it right and everybody else is wrong? Well, understand this. Whoever said that, whoever says that, thinks they're right and everybody else is wrong. Everybody thinks they're right and everybody else is wrong. The atheists think that. The Jews think that. The Christians think that. The Muslims think that. The Hindus think that. The Buddhists think that. Everybody thinks they're right and everybody else is wrong. Even if you say, I think all ways are right, so I'm not including that. No, you think you're right and I'm wrong for saying you're wrong. Everybody thinks they're right and everybody else is wrong. Everybody. Okay? Even if you don't have an opinion, you think that's okay. When I would say, no, it's not. It's not okay. Okay, so everybody's exclusive in that sense. So the question becomes, who's right? Who's right? Somebody, we could all be wrong, but we can't all be right. So the question is, is somebody right? And if so, how do we know? Well, I'll go back and say the first thing. This Pharisee said, I know you from God because all the miracles. Miracles certainly attest to the true faith. Another one is prophecy. Prophecy attests to the true faith. Because how can you write about events that won't happen for hundreds of years and every detail of them get fulfilled and you sit in a time in history where you get to examine all that evidence? You don't have to wait and hope and say, I hope this prophet was right about the future, but I don't know. Hebrews 11 will say all your heroes of the Old Testament died without receiving the promises. But they died in faith that God would indeed fulfill them. And that was the faith that saved them. You, you're not asked to believe in something that's not going to happen in your lifetime. You're asked to believe in something that already happened. Because you can examine the history of it. If you can look at the men and women that were involved in it. You can weigh their credibility and their stories and all of those things. You can make an educated decision. But what we're going to cover in a little while is this is a spiritual decision. It's not always an appeal to the intellect. But I don't want to get ahead of myself on that. So is it truly exclusive? I want to say, yes, all worldviews are exclusive, but at least it's exclusive in a way that invites everybody to be included in its exclusivity. Does that sound as mumbled as it sounded to me? It's highly exclusive in the way, but it's inclusive in that everybody's invited to participate in this one way, correct? So it's inclusive in the invitation, it's exclusive in the way what, what you're invited to. Make sense? All right, very good. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? On behalf of all mothers, they're begging the answer to be no. Correct? <laughs> all right. Um, now, Nicodemus is approaching a heavenly truth with an earthly understanding. He's approaching a heavenly truth about being born again with an earthly understanding. You'll see this next week with the Samaritan woman when she's offered living water. Where's your bucket, Jesus? How do you get living water when you come here with no bucket, right? Earthly understanding of the heavenly truth. We can't do that. We're given a wonderful, wonderful word in both Hebrew and Greek. It means the same thing in English. It's hine in Hebrew. It is edu 
in Greek, and it's the English word behold. Behold means you're about to get a heavenly truth, so don't apply an earthly understanding to this. Be willing, be ready to behold something that's beyond your realm, beyond your experiences, because this is a God talking to you. This is uh, the place where angels dwell. This is where you're invited to be for all eternity, but you're not there now. You're in the shadow. This is going to be a truth that brings you to the light. Okay? And you're going to have to see it from the shadows, this truth of light. So we get that word, behold. Now, here's the heavenly truth, is you have to be born again with this earthly understanding. Mom's not going to like me saying to her, hey, i got to get back in the womb again, correct? So he's saying, how can this happen? Now, um, why do we apply earthly understandings to heavenly truths? And why, even when heavenly understandings are presented to people, they, some people can't get off the earthly understanding. Some people cannot at all accept the heavenly truths. And these people can be really, really smart, right? We can talk to Harvard graduates, MIT graduates, about heavenly truths, especially when it comes to biology and macroevolution and things like that. We can apply all of that, and um, they just won't get it. Why? What is it? Well, I want to direct you to 1 Corinthians 1. And I think what is said in 1 Corinthians 1 and chapter 2 explains it very, very well. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25 says this. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So he's saying the same cross, the same, same exact cross, some people, they say, how foolish are you for believing that? And others say, that's the most powerful thing I've ever heard in my life. And it's not because of their IQs. because of the condition of their heart. And he says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So he's saying, listen, God watched all the wisdom of the wise and saw them make idols, saw them worship false gods that they invented themselves, and through their wisdom they did not come to know God. So it pleased God then through the foolishness of the message preached to reach the world. What's the foolishness of the message preached? It's, you see the guy that the government's executing that they whipped 39 times? That beaten, bloody guy on the cross that they sat upon and is currently being made fun of and mocked? That's the king of all kings. Now your wisdom would say, no way would a king put up with that. Especially the king of all kings would not put up with that. Your heart would say, what love must this be? That would actually not send us to die for our sin, but this king would say, I will die for you for your sin. What king must this be? That's not the wisdom of the world. That's the wisdom of God. Now, how can you understand these things? Well, verse 22 says, For Jews request a sign. It's in the multiple times in the Gospels, the last for a sign. 
chose to sign, chose to sign. So he's saying Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. Is that what they're known for? The philosophers, that's where Plato came from, Socrates, Aristotle. Okay, they, they're seeking after wisdom. But Paul says this, but we preach Christ crucified. You see the word but there? It says Jews want signs, Greeks want wisdom, but, in other words, we're not giving them signs or wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. What are the Jews looking for? A sign, a miracle. Show me your power. Demonstrate your ability. This is how we treat genies, isn't it? Grant me three wishes. Serve me. Work for me. Show me. Okay, Jews are seeking a sign. What did Jesus say about asking for a sign? It's a wicked and an evil generation that asks for a sign. All right? It says Jews request a sign, but to the Jews, the cross is a stumbling block. If they look at the cross and Jesus on it, they go, that's not power. It doesn't look powerful. It doesn't look miraculous. It looks like he's a huge victim, doesn't it? Okay, so it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. What do you mean that's your king? Why isn't he conquering? He looks very conquered. Okay? So those that it's, if you're looking for wisdom, you'll find it foolish. If you're looking for power, you'll stumble over this. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, see the inclusivity? It's Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And the weakness of God is stronger than man. Then down to chapter 2. Um, where do I want to start? Uh, verse 6. 2 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. He said that 2,000 years ago applies equally well today, and since the 1800s, maybe even more so, since the Enlightenment, when they said we don't need God, we can explain everything through science. And then all of a sudden, not long after that, at the turn of the 20th century, Einstein and Hubble and those guys were saying, science is pointing to the need of a creator. It needs a creator to understand science. Um, we, we speak wisdom on those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Isn't that humbling? Guys, don't read past this stuff. Just don't keep cruising through your verses because you're trying to get to the end of something. These are heavenly truths. This should stop you in your tracks. Listen, because we seek the wisdom of God in the mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for what? Our glory? We were thought of before the ages even began. Our glory was considered before the ages began which none of the rulers of this age knew. How do you know they didn't know it? I love how Paul puts it. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You would have killed the guy if you knew. But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Did you guys hear that? Did you hear that? All of you travel to see spectacular things, right? Yet no eye has seen what God has prepared for you. Okay, all of you have heard things, whether it be symphonies, or songs, or poems, or whatever. Even this stuff. And your heart has been moved, and you've been motivated. But Paul's saying, no ear has ever heard what God has prepared for you. No eye has ever seen it. 
has never been considered by the heart of man. As much as you get excited about heaven, you haven't even considered its realities yet because we're not able to behold that well yet. So when you're told in Revelation about heaven, the word like comes a lot. It's like golden streets. It's like this. It's trying to say, you guys are so crazy about gold. Imagine if you paid for your streets with it. That's what it'll be like in heaven. But I think it's far greater than gold. I think it's just something we don't know about. We just don't know what it's about. So it takes our most precious thing and compares it to our most common thing, pavement. This is that's what our pure gold is. Okay, that's what it's like. It's like the best that you have being used for the most common of purposes all the time. Yet, no eye is seen. You've seen gold, so it's got to be better than that. Okay, no ear is heard. A few of you said, wow, what I'm saying. But it's got to be better than that because no ear is heard. And it's never even entered into the heart of man how great it's going to be. That's how you endure hardships. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Now, this is the logic I want you guys to catch, starting in verse 10. Because remember, what we're trying to address is, how do you understand heavenly truths and not apply earthly understanding to them? He's going to tell you in these verses here. God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? So nobody can know what's on my mind unless you ask me what's on my mind, because the spirit that's in me knows what's on my mind, and that's the only way you'll ever know is by asking me, right? Okay? So, even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God. You've received the spirit who's from God, and guess what that spirit knows? The mind of God. So what can you now know, because you have the spirit that knows the mind of God in you, you can now know the mind of God that he reveals to you. So if he's revealing truths, those truths can only be known by those who have the Spirit of God. It can only be known by those. If you look at creation and you, you worship, your heart just goes, God, you're marvelous. When you see whales playing or you see uh, beautiful canyons wherever, you see sunrises and sunset, your heart thinks of God right away. It's only possible because you have a Spirit. Only possible because you have a spirit. Okay? Creation is a wonderful evangelist, correct? But you can only know the mind of God if you see the artistry of God if you have the spirit of God in you. So he says, But the spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. This is why I specifically enjoy a certain apologist I like watching William Lane Craig. What I like about him is he will debate atheists and he'll always make his final point of the proof of the existence of God, the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you think that goes over with the atheists at the table next to him? They always get up and go, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. What kind of garbage is that? That's not scientific. That's not that he can show that. And he says, no, but there's people that know what I'm talking about. They know that they have that inner witness of the Holy Spirit in them. And so there's a lot of people, amening my fifth point right now, where you don't, but you should find it awfully coincidental that there's about two billion people on the planet that, well, I know what he's talking about. I know what he's talking about. And here's the thing. And what I love about that is he will then invite the atheist to come to Christ. He'll say, 
I'm, I'm stating to you that there's a, an inner testimony that makes me know that what I'm saying is true. And you're obviously acknowledging that you don't have that inner testimony. So you're a scientist that's dedicated to discovering the truth. So why wouldn't you try to discover this truth? Don't call yourself a scientist if you don't at least lift up a prayer to God and say, if you're real, I'm willing to know because I'm a scientist and I'm supposed to find things out. So at least reveal yourself to me as a scientist. If you don't do that, then at least say, I don't play fair because I really don't want the truth. I just want to be right so I can sell my books. At least submit to that. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Listen, nor can he know them. There's an ability that they do not have. Trying to tell a devout atheist about divine creation and not macroevolution is like trying to tell a blind person about the color blue. They're just going to go, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't get it. I can't see what you see. Okay? The only the gospel will open their eyes. Because they are spiritually discerned, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct them? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, I, I didn't count, but just in these verses that I want you to pay attention to, I see the word spirit in verse 10. I see the word spirit in verse 11. I see the word spirit twice in verse 11. I see the word spirit 12, again in 12. Uh, I see the word spirit in 13. I see spiritual with spiritual in 13. I see uh, spirit in 14 and 15, or no, twice in 14, then in 15. I should have counted this in my study time. Eleven times in those verses, the word spirit or spiritual. Why do I bring that up? Because what verse are we talking about now? You must be born again of the, or you're not going to know any of this stuff. You've got to be born again of the spirit. The necessity to know the things of God. You've got to be born again of the spirit. It's my personal belief. I don't know that we can prove it necessarily theologically. But that's what died in Adam and Eve on the day they ate of the fruit of their spirit. Because I know they lived to be hundreds and hundreds of years old. So they didn't die on the day they ate of the fruit physically. They must have died spiritually. And all the talk of Paul is to be, um, or of Jesus, is to be born of the spirit. Okay. So I think when you're created in the image of God, he's triune. He made you body, soul, and spirit. Triune like him. You sinned, your spirit dies, you're dead in your trespasses and sin, you're dead, you're just body and soul walking around without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, you're just body and soul. Nothing eternal about you. Okay, body and soul. Don't understand the things of God, because there's no spirit to relate to him. There's no spirit so you can know the mind of Christ. And then Jesus says, be born again of the renewed to your triune nature, back in the full image of God. Now you can understand the things of God, and now you can rightly reflect him. Or maybe not. Just what I think. Alright. So. John 3. Verse 5 already. Okay. Verse 5. Okay. Jesus answered. And 
case you forgot the question, it was how can a man be born when he's old? Can he go a second time into his mother's womb and be born, right? Jesus' answer to that is, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which born is born of flesh is flesh. That's the water birth, right? Most scholars believe he's talking about the water breaking, right? Being born of water, okay? Um, so when you have when you have that water birth, that which is born of, is, of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Now Jesus is doing a little bit of a play on words there, because in Greek the word wind and the word spirit is the same Greek word pneuma. So he's saying the pneuma blows where it wishes, so is everyone born of the pneuma, doing a play on words. Now, as you know, you cannot see the wind, correct? So how could you ever, ever, ever declare that it's windy? You see the effects of the wind, right? The effects of the wind are such a clear-cut demonstration of the presence of the wind that nobody questions it. Nobody says, I think those leaves are blowing for some other reason. They all agree it's the wind. They know the effects of the wind. The same is true of the spirit. There's effects of the spirit living in you. Those become your fruit, your works. Okay? Did a whole sermon yesterday just on service. And the I was amazed as I was researching service of how profoundly clear it is that it is the sign to the world that you're truly saved. How do you like that? Say that again. It's the sign to the world that you're truly saved is your service, your works. Jesus said, you'll know them, you'll know who am I, by the fruit that they bear, right? Uh, you'll know, you'll see it, you can see it. Can you see faith? Mark chapter 2, they're lowering their paralytic friend through the roof on the mat. Now says, Jesus saw their faith. How, what does faith look like? Their service to their friend. Jesus saw it, right? Okay. Now, verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? How could this be true, what you're saying about being born again? Jesus answered and said to, them, said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Who's the we? It's only talking about him and the Holy Spirit right now, right? Right? Certainly not talking about the apostles. They don't know nothing at this point about this stuff. Okay? He's only mentioning the Holy Spirit, and he's talking about the testimony of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. So it certainly can't be the apostles. They don't have anything they've seen that they can really testify to right now. And you do not receive our witness. If, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now what did he just transition to in the middle of that sentence? Listen. He's saying, 
We're giving you testimony of heavenly truths, and you're applying earthly understandings to these heavenly truths. You cannot do that. So now what does he do to prove his point? He gives them a story they're very, very familiar with. This is from Numbers 21, and you can go there with me. Numbers chapter 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Okay. Numbers 21. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. I actually found something new in this today that astounded me. So this is why we keep reading our Bibles, right? Numbers 21, we'll start in verse 4. This is Moses in the wilderness with the Israelites. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. Here's what they say. There's no food. And then they say, and we don't like this bread. Sounds like our kids, right? Okay. Um, we, there's no food, and we don't like the bread. All right, now, what is the worthless bread they're talking about? Manna. How are they going to feel when John 6 is written? And Jesus says, I'm the true manna that came down from heaven. And they said, we hate this worthless bread. This is why what happens, happens. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Listen, I went into a Hebrew Old Testament today at this verse, and in that Hebrew Old Testament it does not say, Pray that the Lord take away the serpents from us. It actually says, pray that the Lord take away ta natash. You hear that? That is singular, the serpent. They're being bit by fiery serpents. And what's their pray, prayer? Take away the serpents. Who do they see behind us? They're attributing this to the work of the devil, aren't they? Take away the serpent, it's singular in the original. Okay, not in the translation, but it's singular in the original. Take the serpent away from us. Now watch what happens with this then. Um, so Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, Jesus, the Savior, says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He makes a direct parallel between him and what? The serpent. He's the serpent in this analogy, isn't he? He's the serpent that they prayed, take the serpents away from us, right? He's also the manna that they loathed. Okay. Now, 
The serpent figure in the Old Testament is who? Satan. Right? And God says to Moses, make a bronze serpent and put him on a pole and whoever looks upon it and believes shall live. Now Jesus says, just like that, I must be that bronze serpent lifted up that whoever looks upon me may live. Why? A serpent. Why the holy and pure Savior taking the form of a serpent? Because he, the Bible says, he didn't become a sinner on the cross. The Bible says he became sin. It was serious business on that cross. He became sin. He became the awful stench in his father's nostrils that makes his father turn his back on his son. That makes his son scream out in agony over the separation. Nails in his body do not make him scream out. Whips on his back do not make him scream out. Punches in the face do not make him scream out. But when his father turned his back, it was more than Jesus could take. And he cries out in his agony because he's become the serpent figure. He has become sin. Not because he sinned. Because you did. That is what we've got to get clear. Because I sinned. Because you sinned. He became the serpent figure that caused his father to abandon him. And they were never apart at any point in eternal history until our sin had to be dealt with. This is why we worship. This is why we read our Bibles. This is where the power of the transformation of your life will come from. Because now, how does this verse sound to you? Any different? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Does it sound a little bit different now? And you realize what Jesus just compared himself to there? Now, verse 15. Son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I don't know if I can finish this whole section, but I want to finish with this. Okay, if you've heard me teach this before, you know where I'm going with this because I will always, always go there with this with John 3.16. There are two words. John 3.16 that I want to focus in on. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What two words stand out to you that should be dealt with? Whosoever loved, gave, leaves, Son, you only got one of them right. Not eternal, not life. Gave is one. And of course, the majorly important theological word, so. Because it's not saying for God so loved the world, like arms spread wide. So means in this manner. He did it just so. How did God love the world? In what manner did he love it? How did he love it so that he gave? He loved it so much that he gave. Gave what? How? Did he give his son that demonstrated the manner in which he loved the world? Isaiah 52, 13. 
and following, says, this is the manner that he gave his son. The father speaking of his son, calling him his servant, says, behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and high and lifted up. And just as many as were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form was marred more than the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they will consider. But who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid our faces from him. He was despised. And we did not esteem him. He borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have seen him to be stricken and afflicted by God. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace fell upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray, each to his turn to his own way. And the Lord has laid it upon him the sin of all of us. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, but he wouldn't open his mouth. As a lamb is led to the slaughter, and his sheep before its shears remain silent, so he would not open his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Remember all the sins and iniquities that was on us that he paid for? It says that there was he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. But it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for our sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, and he'll bear their sin. Therefore, I'll divide to him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the sinners, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's the manner in which God loved the world, that he gave his son over to us for that. Listen, there is no other motivational speeches for your devotional time, your church attendance. Your giving, your service, all of that, than being overwhelmed by what he's done for you. If you're not overwhelmed by what he's done for you, I promise you, you need to check your heart. You need to pray that God opens your heart to understand that you're the recipient of intense, cosmic, divine love that should move you to be a very bold Christian for the rest of your life. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for our friends.
And I pray that you would uh, be blessed by our fellowship and, Lord, by um, just our listening to your word tonight. We honor you, Lord. We worship you. Lord, we bow our knee and we confess that you are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.